This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. The 1990s kicked off with an audio rebellion against the superficial, telegenic, and overly spandexed hair metal bands that were grabbing screen time on MTV and dominating the radio airwaves. When Nirvana's second album, Nevermind, dropped in 1991, in many ways it obliterated that entire scene and ushered in the grittier, angrier, and more angsty era of grunge. But soon, pure pop music would find its way back to the mainstream. I'm Steve Greenberg, and this is Speed of Sound. Okay, so it's sometime in 1995, and I'm in the supermarket, standing on the checkout line. To kill time while I'm waiting to check out, I pick up a copy of a teen magazine that was on the rack. I think it was Tiger Beat magazine. I remember Tiger Beat from when I was a kid. It was the magazine that featured teen idol singers like Donny Osmond or David Cassidy. Later on, in the 80s, you saw new kids on the block on the cover a lot. So I'm leafing through Tiger Beat, and I realize there are no singers in the magazine at all. It's filled 100% with teen actors like Jonathan Taylor Thomas, the star of a sitcom called Home Improvement. Hey, Dad, maybe we should get Mom a heater for her birthday. Birthday. Dad forgot Mom's birthday. Did not. Did you? Did not. So I'm thinking to myself, why are there no singers in this magazine? But then it quickly hits me that, of course, people like Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam or Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, the biggest bands of the day, aren't really appropriate for a magazine aimed at 12-year-old girls. And furthermore, I couldn't really think of any currently popular singers that were. And then I started to think about how the whole pop music scene at that particular time was addressing a sensibility that was kind of negative, kind of depressed, pessimistic. I thought to myself, there must be a lot of kids out there who aren't jaded or feeling hopeless who just want to have a happy life, who want to have friends or want to fall in love or just want to be happy. 
And there's really no music speaking to those kids. I refuse to believe that this whole generation of kids was just bummed out and cynical. And so at that point, I resolved to keep my eyes and ears open for a musical artist who could bring back optimism, bring back happiness. But it was clear that launching a teen idol wouldn't be an easy thing to do, even if I found the right singer or group. In fact, right around the same time as my trip to the supermarket, a new group that fit the bill did release their first single, and it failed to get much attention at all, despite a major push by their record label. If anybody in the music business talked about that group at all, it was to present them as exhibit A for why a pop group couldn't be successful in the current climate. The group was called the Backstreet Boys. Their manager, Johnny Wright, recalls. We tried to put a record out, you know, in the United States, produced by then Max Martin and Dennis Pop called We Got It Going On. At that point in time, as you talked about, nobody cared about a boy band. You know, in fact, they were happy to see New Kids on a Block go away. It was a lot of grunge and everything else was happening. These guys, Backstreet Boys, I'll tell you, they did openings of pet stores and stuff like that in order to try to get known and try to move that record. And for the most part, the stations that we did promo for, they gave us a spin or two, but it just really never connected. And at that point in time, I think Jive Records was in a position of, well, maybe this is just not going to work. And there was this worry that the guys are going to get dropped from the label. But that's when I said, well, look, the boy band situation is happening in Europe. Give us another shot. Let us go over there and see if we can make something happen. And we ended up leaving the U.S. Pop music certainly felt irrelevant in a music scene that had been turned upside down by the arrival of Nirvana's album Nevermind at the end of 1991. Nirvana introduced mainstream America to grunge music, which had been incubating in Seattle since the late 1980s. Musically, grunge was kind of a hybrid of metal and punk, more or less. And by combining guitar distortion with lyrics that dealt with isolation, frustration, and depression, it spoke to its audience of Gen Xers in a way that just seemed more authentic and relatable than the rock music that was on the radio at the beginning of the 90s. In fact, Grunge very quickly made the music it replaced seem very dated. Danny Goldberg, who managed Nirvana, recalls that moment in time. The MTV pop rock culture was known for what we used to call hair bands, rock bands that had some metal influences. The lead singers inevitably had this long blow-dried hair, and in the music videos, usually there was a fan off camera blowing it. And they had a lot of them, uh, artists like Winger and Warrant and Poison, had kind of pop choruses and melodies, but with kind of a frame of, of what was becoming more and more of a retro rock. Bon Jovi was a big artist then, too. And the biggest of that era was Guns N' Roses. So there was sort of a feeling among college kids and kind of the intellectual cutting-edge side of the rock audience that that was an empty, shallow culture. In the early 90s, grunge music was the latest manifestation of what had become known as alternative music. That term was coined way back in 1979 by a man named Terry Tolkien, who was looking for an umbrella term to describe the punk and post-punk music he was writing about in a publication called Rock Pool Newsletter. As the 1980s wore on, alternative music became more and more popular as an underground scene, and it finally exploded onto the mainstream with the release of Nevermind. Danny Goldberg remembers. 
And Nirvana um, and the song Smells Like Teen Spirit in September of 91 just touches that nerve. The pent-up frustration of more than 10 years of Republican presidency, the uh, shallowness of what had be now become perceived to a lot of young people as, as a, a corporate rock. Smells Like Teen Spirit became a most unlikely pop radio hit in the winter of 1992, and it immediately caused an aesthetic shift in the music world. Karen Glauber, who was an editor at Hits Magazine during this period, summed up the appeal of grunge. Kids just saw themselves. It was the first time they could see a singer who reminded them of them. And most kids are not popular. Most kids are not really, haven't, don't have their lives figured out. Kids are a mess. So this is the first time a kid could connect with an artist and say, this is not even aspirational. This is relatable. Because the whole fantasy of MTV was, this is a life you can aspire to. And now it's, this guy is me. Alternative rock very quickly commanded center stage in the music world. Danny Goldberg recalls. For a period of time, alternative rock was pop. I I would argue that Nirvana was kind of the last rock band to also be a giant pop act. That in back in the day, Kurt Cobain was a celebrity the way Rihanna or Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift is. You know, he, 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 was, he was not just the most famous rock artist. He was kind of the most famous artist for a minute. Seattle's grunge scene had its own distinct culture during that era. And it encompassed not just the music, but also its own fashion and a general lifestyle. And the scene was pretty resentful of efforts by mainstream culture to co-opt it. There was a real disdain for the establishment. A New York Times reporter was once sent to Seattle to write a serious sociological piece on the culture of grunge. And an employee of the alternative record label Sub Pop fooled him into thinking that grunge actually had its own lingo, consisting of terms like swinging on the flippity flop and cob nobbler, which were completely made up. The Times actually published these terms under the heading, a lexicon of grunge breaking the code. And they wound up pretty embarrassed. Anyway, pretty soon the grunge scene started to spread nationwide, impacting every aspect of pop culture, as Karen Glauber recalls. People wanted to, whether it was Hot Topic coming into business and kids could go into stores and, and all of a sudden emerge, instead of going to thrift stores like we did, to look a certain way when we were younger. You could go to Hot Topic. You could go to Macy's. You could go anywhere and buy some torn flannel, cut off jeans, a, you know, a chain belt, Doc Martens. You could look the part. Alternative culture even spawned its own hit movies like 1992's Singles, complete with a soundtrack featuring songs by alternative superstars like Smashing Pumpkins and Paul Westerberg of The Replacements. If you can't find love, you settle for sex. I'm on the bed right now, wearing something really outrageous. I think you got the wrong number, lady, but I'll be right over. And even TV shows were leaning on alternative music to seem cool, with bands like Mud Honey and Buffalo Tom getting exposure on primetime shows like My So-Called Life. Can we... Inevitably, grunge and alternative even took over pop radio. 
Tom Pullman became program director of New York's top 40 music station, Z100, in 1996, and he remembers what it was like. When I got the job at Z100 in 1996, top 40 was really in a grunge space at the time. So the big songs uh, back then were like Alanis Morissette, uh, Radiohead, Soul Asylum, uh, Oasis, Live, Green Day, all those songs were really big, and people were saying that that was the pop music of the time. So when I got there... Z100 uh, was taking the grunge ride. It was so popular. Bands like Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, Alanis Morissette. It, it, it kind of felt like that was, by definition, the pop music because it was the most popular thing. Did a straight-ahead pop record have a chance in that moment? Not really. I would look at our research, and I would see all the songs that we were supposed to play, according to the research, and they were all like rock and uh, grunge, and there was no way in that mix of music that I could throw on a pure pop record. Eventually, the grunge scene started to suffer from overkill. Karen Glauber explained how that happened. Truly, all those Seattle bands were getting a shot, and what also happened is that every A&R person would start going to Seattle, and the Four Seasons was always teeming with A&R people looking to sign the next grunge act, and what happens in any um, scene is that it starts to dilute. So people were signing bands that were, the only thing they had going for them is that they were geographically desirable. They became very, very popular, you know, they had their shot. And with any scene, once that becomes too popular, and once your little brother and sister are going around the house singing Nirvana lyrics, it's just not cool anymore you got to go find the next thing. Danny Goldberg points to another reason for the decline of alternative rock. So, yeah, it was a pretty brief reign that the alternative rock had. At the time, it seemed like it was going to go on forever, but it was really only a few years. And the reason for that was because it was kind of the last gasp of rock and roll as pop music because of the growing ascendance of hip-hop. The difference between pop and rock, to me, has a lot to do with Two things, age and gender. Pop is younger and skews much more female. Rock is a little bit older and skews much more male. And, uh, you know, African-American music had mostly been pop music. R&B was mostly pop. It didn't have that male energy that got, you know, headbangers and guys, you know, deriving their identity from it. But hip-hop did. And hip-hop was the first time that, that you could kind of be, as the cliche was in politics, an angry black man and be a star. It went from being a liability to a virtue commercially. And that sucked up a lot of the social and cultural energy that Alternative Rock had had just a few years earlier. So by the second half of the 90s, that balance of power was already shifting in favor of hip hop and it created a pop vacuum. Me? I personally began to sense that the alternative scene was running out of creative steam in mid-1995 when I heard a record on Z100 by Soul Asylum, a band I generally respected, but the lyrics to this song sounded to me like a parody of the whole scene. It 
was around that time that I really resolved to search for a pop band. And I wasn't the only one with that idea. In England, where the British version of alternative called Britpop was ruling the charts, acts like Oasis and Blur, an artist manager named Simon Fuller also noticed the dearth of pure pop on the charts, and he also made a mental note to do something about it. Now, closer to home, Tom Pullman of radio station Z100 had a similar epiphany at the station's very first Jingle Ball concert at New York's Madison Square Garden. So here was my moment, okay, at Z100, because we were in 18th place. We were talking about changing formats. We did format searches. We contemplated going full-on alternative. But anyway, we built Jingle Ball. The artists that we started to book were all female. So we ended up calling it Girls Rule the Yule. And we had uh, like Tracy Chapman and Gwen Stefani from No Doubt, Cheryl Crow, Jewel. At that show, I remember being under the rafters, you know, kind of like that backstage area. No Doubt being on stage in the place being packed with all these teenage girls and they were all bouncing at the same time. I was by myself in that back area and I could feel the ground shaking. And I was like, my God, if we can elicit this kind of response out of people, we're still alive. When we come back, Pop Salvation appears at a town fair in Kansas. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees, every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. 
Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. In early 1996, I was working at Mercury Records as an A&R man. They're the people who look for new talent and then help make the records. People at the label knew I wanted to make a pop record, and so one day I received a phone call from one of our executives on the West Coast, a woman named Allison Hamamura. Allison had a lot of cred in the alternative rock community, and so she felt she wasn't the right person to follow up on this demo tape that she'd gotten from her boyfriend, Jeff Rabhan, who'd gotten it from his friend, Christopher Sabeck, who managed the band. But Allison Hamamura thought, maybe it would be up my alley and I might want to check it out. What she didn't tell me is that this act had already been passed on by every label in the business. Now, when I played the demo, I was flabbergasted. It was this little kid whose voice hadn't even broken yet, but it was an amazing voice. And he was singing this song that he'd supposedly written with his two brothers, who were also just young kids, and they all claimed to be playing their own instruments. Even the 10-year-old drummer. The band was called Hanson, and they were from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Incredibly, their demo sounded as though they hadn't been listening to contemporary radio at all. It sounded like they'd been listening to old Jackson 5 records or something. I decided to go check them out at a town fair in Coffeyville, Kansas. This was in March of 1996. To be honest, I went half expecting to find out that it was all a put-on, that they couldn't really sing as well as they did on the demo, or they couldn't really play their own instruments, or maybe they had a third eye in the middle of their foreheads. I was ready for something to be wrong with this picture. When I got to Coffeyville, it was a pretty sad scene. The town was economically depressed. Most of the shops on Main Street stood empty. The fair, officially called the Coffeyville New Beginnings Festival, was intended to boost the town's spirits. But it was poorly attended, maybe a dozen or so girls waiting in front of the stage for the band to appear. The stage, by the way, was the back of a flatbed truck. On the side of the stage, there was a woman standing by a table with Hanson t-shirts for sale. I surmise she must be their mother. No one was buying the t-shirt, so I decided I'd buy one because I kind of felt bad. And by the way, I still have that shirt to this day. Their mom didn't know I was from a record company, and she kept wondering to me why the turnout was so light. She figured the festival must have been poorly publicized. Well, the band came on, and they were great. They sang great, they played great, and they looked great. And those dozen or so girls in front of the stage, they were smitten. After the show, I introduced myself and said I wanted to sign them to a record deal. I found out later that after I left, they figured I was kidding and that they'd never hear from me again. When I got back to New York, I told Danny Goldberg, yes, the same Danny Goldberg who used to manage Nirvana, but who was now president of Mercury Records, that I wanted to sign these kids. I was kind of expecting him to be dismissive, but instead, he immediately agreed. We were on our way. I'll let Taylor Hansen pick up the story from here. Every label, major label in out there um, passed on the record and passed on the band. And I think, you know, even with Mercury, I think technically there were three different folks that passed on our demo until uh, until it finally reached uh, you and, and Danny. And the spark, I think, was that understanding that, that pop music had a place in kind of modern music. And we just figured that we hadn't found the right person. It turns out that my hunch about Hanson not listening to the radio was correct. 
They'd spent some of their childhood living in Latin America where their dad was sent for work by an oil company. The only music they listened to during that time was a series of cassettes released by Time Life that featured year by year top hits of every year from the late 1950s to 1970. Here's Taylor again. So you hear Chuck Berry and you hear Otis Redding and you hear, you know, this early rock and roll and it just clicked. Um, So it was almost like we were in a bubble um, of our own, a bubble within a bubble. And here at, you know, nine years old um, and even younger, actually, um, I just remember having that that spark and and hearing music and and feeling like it was for me uh, and feeling like it was as current as anything else that was out there. I mean, Little Richard could have been the, the latest single, you know, hearing Otis Redding's, you know, sitting in the dock of the bay or hearing Michael Jackson's voice. It was just like, this is, this is alive and new. We moved the band and their family out to LA and set about writing and recording their debut album. While everyone at the label agreed that Hanson's demo was great, there were a lot of skeptics who couldn't see how we could break the band with a straight pop record. I kept getting encouraged to take the record in a more alternative direction so we could start it at alternative radio, like most hits of that period. I was determined to stay the course and keep the project pure pop. But I did hedge my bets. To produce the album, I brought in the Dust Brothers, who had just produced Beck's album, Odelay. The Beck album still hadn't been released, but someone at Mercury Records played me an advanced copy, and I thought the record was just great. It had a fresh sound, and yet you could tell that the producers had a real affection for old records. When the Dust Brothers heard Umbop, they immediately agreed to produce the album. These were just the guys who could update that Jackson 5 sound for the 90s, and it didn't hurt that they could bring a little alternative cred to the project. Taylor Hansen remembers. The best thing about the Dust Brothers was they understood that we were essentially cut from the Jackson 5 cloth. You know, we, we were not emulating something uh, that wasn't authentic. They, they got that we were talking about music um, both as people that loved uh, style and were authentically creating it. It wasn't a gimmick. And so we talked about records. And, you know, when they were bringing in their, you know, their style and, you know, bringing in loops from vintage records and and sitting there and talking about music right there in their, you know, house in Silver Lake. Um, we were having the conversation that we'd have with, you know, with you, Steve, about, you know, the history of music or records that made us want to play. And so I think that that respect, there was always actually a, uh, a kind of uh, respect that we could, you know, talk music. The Dust Brothers recorded all the basic tracks of Umbop, the guitar, bass, and the drum loop, which actually was a sped-up sample from a record called Synthetic Substitution by Melvin Bliss, with the drums being played by the legendary R&B drummer Bernard Purdy. It was a pretty cool basis for the track, but it wasn't completed, and they hadn't even begun to try and record the vocal, when suddenly... The Dust Brothers ghosted us. They just stopped showing up at the studio, which was their own studio. It turns out that between the time we hired them and when we started to record, the Beck album was released to great acclaim, and the Dust Brothers were suddenly extremely hot producers. Add in the fact that they had very little patience for the studio antics of the band's 10-year-old drummer, Zach Hansen, who was acting like a 10-year-old, 
and the Dust Brothers just decided that there were things they'd rather be doing. So we were left without a producer for the project, but luckily, I had a backup idea. And so in late June, I headed to London to meet with Stephen Laroni. Now, Stephen Laroni wasn't the toast of the music industry at that moment, like the Dust Brothers, but he had just produced an incredibly cool album by an English band called Black Grape. Also, years earlier, Stephen Laroni played drums in the great Scottish band Altered Images, fronted by his future wife and star of the movie Gregory's Girl, Claire Grogan. Stephen Laroni, like the Dust Brothers, was genuinely excited about Hanson's pop roots, and perhaps just as importantly, he had the temperament to work with three young brothers. Besides 10-year-old Zach, there was 13-year-old Taylor, and the old man of the group, 15-year-old guitarist Isaac Hansen. So it was a very fruitful trip to London. I even got to hear a cool new song on the radio over there that was just being released that week. I thought to myself, cool British pop record, but I don't know if those radio guys in America are going to give it a shot. Anyway, back in L.A., Stephen Laroni added a lot to the Dust Brothers' basic tracks on Umbop. More drums, extra guitars, and even some keyboards. Taylor Hansen recalls his contribution. Really, Stephen uh, is who made that record a reality and was such a great um, ear and such a great producer and arranger to work with us. He turned what was a kind of an inspiration into a record. The only problem was, try as we might, we couldn't get a usable vocal out of Taylor Hansen. You see, he was 13 years old, and his voice was in the middle of changing. There were thoughts of dropping the key of the record so the high notes wouldn't be so difficult to reach, but I was really stubborn about the fact that I wanted to keep the song in its original key. It was just too exciting that way, and I didn't want to lose that. So we teamed the group up with a vocal coach named Roger Love. When the biggest stars in the world need to find their true voice... They turn to one expert. And no other voice coach in history has been more commercially successful than Roger Love. Roger Love worked with the Hanson brothers all summer and into the fall, getting snatches of the vocal for Umbop here and there when Taylor's voice cooperated. But finally, we reached the end of recording the entire album, and there was one note that Taylor could simply no longer sing the way he had on the original demo, no matter how many times he tried. And so we cheated. We slowed down the tape, Taylor sang the high note, and then we sped the tape back up. When it was time to mix Umbop, our mixer, a legendary engineer named Tom Lord Algae, added one final touch to the record. In the last chorus, he deconstructed the track, breaking it down to just drums and a scratch sample. The scratch had been originally inserted into the record by the Dust Brothers, and it was actually a sample of a scratch from the record Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren. Now, in the Dust Brothers version, the scratch was buried way down in the mix. Tom Lord Algae, though, he turned it way up, and on that breakdown, the scratch was just staring right at us, completely exposed. We knew we couldn't get away with that, and so we changed the pitch of the scratch and manipulated the final note so that now it was sufficiently different from the one on the Malcolm McLaren record. 
What is truly amazing about Umbop is that the three brothers really did write it all by themselves. And it's actually a pretty profound song about valuing the relationships that truly matter because those are the only people who stick with you until the end. But listeners may not have caught on to the lyrics because as great as Taylor Hansen's vocal was, his enunciation was pretty indecipherable. I remember playing the record for Glenn Ballard, who was Alanis Morissette's producer, and his reaction was, great record, but it sounds like he's singing in Esperanto. For me, that was part of the record's appeal. It made it kind of mysterious. Now, for the songs that became the album's other hit singles, we brought in the top songwriters in the music business to co-write with Isaac, Taylor, and Zach. There was Desmond Child. He co-wrote Weird. There was the great husband and wife songwriting duo, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. They co-wrote the ballad, I Will Come To You with the Boys. And most significantly, there was Mark Hudson. Mark had been in a successful three-brother rock band himself back in the 70s, the Hudson Brothers. They even had their own weekly TV show for a while. It's the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show. Starring Bill, Mark, and Brett, the Hudson Brothers. And in the early 90s, Mark Hudson wrote the Aerosmith hit, Living on the Edge. Mark Hudson knew what it was like to be in a band with your brothers, and he proved to be a big brother of sorts to Hanson. He also co-wrote their hit, Where's the Love? So Mark Hudson uh, is, you know, brilliant and, you know, one of those people we've continued to, to uh, work with and respect. He, he was monumental, um, I'd say even more than the fact that he understood, you know, brother dynamics, having been with, you know, a group with his brothers, he understood singing. His respect for the Beatles and the Beach Boys and having sung with his brothers, he understood the power of harmony. On my first day back in the office in New York, I turned on the radio and heard this. And hearing Wannabe by the Spice Girls on New York radio, well, I'll tell you, that really emboldened me because I thought, okay, if they can play this on the radio, then there's no way anybody can say no when we show up with Umbop because the door has just been blown wide open. Tom Pullman remembers that moment in pop history as well. At Z100, we started to have confidence that we could be a pop radio station again. We made that commitment, okay, we're just going to play all the hot music because that's the only thing we can own. We can't own one particular genre, but we can own the genre of playing the best of the best. And so we started to look for any kind of pop-sounding hit. And uh, when we heard Spice Girls, it was like, oh my God, this is a fun song it reflects the attitude of people feeling good again and just fun. So we put that on Z100 and it exploded. 
When we return, Girl Power Conquers America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. In 1994, a British manager named Bob Herbert took out an ad in Stage Magazine looking for girls to audition for a new group. The basic idea was to form a girl group called Touch, which was intended as kind of a female equivalent of the popular British boy band Take That. 400 young women auditioned, and in the end, Bob Herbert and his son Chris chose five. Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Emma Bunton, Victoria Adams, and Jerry Halliwell. In a 2007 BBC documentary, Victoria Adams, these days known as Victoria Beckham, remembers the audition. Tons and tons and tons of girls auditioned for it, and everybody was there singing pop songs, and I sang Mine Hair from Cabaret. The Herberts spent over a year grooming the girls, recording demos and developing dance routines, but never succeeding in getting them a record contract. Oddly enough, they never signed the girls to a management contract, and eventually the girls decided to ditch the Herberts as their managers. They eventually found their way to Simon Fuller, who managed Annie Lennox, formerly of the Eurythmics. 
Simon Fuller had noticed a hole in the pop market and thought the time was right for Britain to move past the homegrown alternative music known as Britpop and embrace pure, unadulterated pop. And he thought these girls would be an ideal vehicle for making that happen. Jerry Halliwell suggested changing the name of the group to Spice, and Fuller, to make the name more appealing to the younger set, suggested adding the word girls. Thus were christened the Spice Girls. Years later, Simon Fuller credited his other client, Annie Lennox, with providing the Spice Girls with the crucial ingredient that would turn them into superstars. You see, Annie Lennox met the girls very early on, and she encouraged each of them to be louder, more brash, and much more specific in defining their own individual personas. Well, Simon Fuller quickly got the Spice Girls a contract with Virgin Records, and he decided they should co-write their material for their first album. So he teamed them up with songwriters Richard Stannard and Matt Rowe. And at their very first songwriting session, they came up with a song called Wannabe. If you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my friends. Make it last forever. Friendship never ends. Wannabe was more than a pop song. It was a manifesto of female solidarity. The Spice Girls ethos was summed up by the slogan, Girl Power which was actually lifted from the British pop-punk group Shampoo, whose single Girl Power was released earlier in 1995. Wannabe by the Spice Girls shot to number one in the UK in July of 1996 and wound up as the UK's number one song of the year. Almost immediately upon the release of Wannabe, the five girls were rechristened with their memorable nicknames, Baby, Scary, Posh, Ginger, and Sporty. Mel B, also known as Scary Spice, recalled the origin of the nicknames, which were coined by Peter Lorraine, who was editor of the British magazine Top of the Pops. Well, you know, it was actually a lazy journalist that couldn't be bothered to remember all our names, so he just gave us nicknames. And we were like, oh, well, that kind of works. I don't mind my name. Do you like your name, baby? Posh? We were like, let's just go with it. The Spice Girls' debut album, released that fall, sold close to 2 million albums by Christmas, making it the fastest-selling British album since the days of Beatlemania. But even so, their team approached the USA with great caution. Phil Corderero, who was president of Virgin Records' American label at that time, remembers the challenge. Well, we were in that era, right, Smashing Pumpkins and The Verve, and um, we had a lot of that, a lot of that at that time, yes. In the mid-'90s, there were two... Um, contrasting things going on, right? One was the grunge movement, but there was also um, a hip-hop uh, component that was on the radio at the time, which was, you know, Snoop Dogg and that kind of stuff. We hear the Spice Girls, but to your point, that era on radio was filled with um, grunge and Seattle sound, Raj bands, you know, all that, you know. And we had a few of those, which was great. But I looked at where we were in the charts, and I knew that, Really, we were still a year away from being able to get away with a pop girl band at radio. So Phil Corderero waited, but he needed to convince his colleagues at the British label to be patient, telling them, American radio is not going to play this record right now, no matter how good it is. You know, we'll get the airplay, but it won't be as big or as fast as it needs to be, because it needs to go fast. When, the, when you move across the genre, when the pendulum does swing back and radio shifts, the first ones through the pipe have to be very, very strong because that's what pushes the, the shift. 
So we can be that record, but we can't be that record now because the market is still embracing, you know, the, the rock stuff at the moment. So they came up with a plan. So what we agreed to do was that they would be starting the record around the world, which is what they did. It blew up in England and went through Europe. They got really a, a good foothold in Asia and Japan and South America, you know, like basically the whole world. And we didn't have the Internet, don't forget, at that point, not nearly to the degree we have now. So it was not it was not going to spread virally without us manually driving it. So it allowed us a campaign where it, despite the first track would break everywhere in the world first and would get here when we need it with a lot of horsepower. And that was the plan. And that's exactly what we did. So by the time it got here, it was proven already. And, you know, it was already number one in a dozen markets. It shows up here exactly when the market was shifting. So it exploded here. When it was finally released in the U.S. at the beginning of 1997, Wannabe by the Spice Girls quickly shot to number one. And so did their album. They were an immediate pop culture sensation. And so, emboldened by the success of the Spice Girls, I just knew we'd have a big hit with Hanson. And so we set to work getting all the elements just right to introduce the band to the world. In the spirit of bringing in the Dust Brothers, we recruited an incredibly talented and cred director named Tamara Davis to direct the Umbach video. She'd previously done videos for alternative artists like The Smiths and Sonic Youth and incidentally was married to Mike D of the Beastie Boys. Danny Goldberg understood the power of having people like Tamara Davis involved. Yeah, well, it was very smart, the Dust Brothers, to be as producers who had worked with uh, Beck and who had a cred, and then Tamara Davis doing the video, who was kind of a done Beastie Boys stuff and had some cred to it, and to just give it kind of permission for the old, you know, 14 or 15-year-old boys to not hate it, and it differentiated it from just a pure retro pop thing. And, you know, I think um, we all also kind of wanted Hanson to be a little cooler than they actually were just for our own notion of who we were in the world. And it really benefited them. The great video Tamara Davis directed proved to be crucial to Umbop's success, as Danny Goldberg recalled. It's hard for people to remember who aren't older how powerful MTV was at that time. You know, it still exists as a channel, but it's not 24 hours a day music videos. Uh, and there was no YouTube, obviously. There was no internet that could play videos. I think email was already there, but it wasn't a video medium. So MTV was this 800-pound gorilla in the music business. And if a video worked for them, radio usually would follow. I remember we had a guy named Jason Lynn working for us, who was the guy that used to bring videos to... MTV and the day that he came back from the music meeting with this big smile on his face that they quote-unquote loved it done you know <laughs> that, that was so powerful that everything after that was like um, uh, pedaling a bike uh, downhill the excitement at the record company was building to a fevered pitch as Taylor Hansen remembered I think everybody on the team you know got the idea that uh, there was something special happening um, but at the same time Sometimes the special thing is ahead of its curve too much. You don't necessarily hit that perfect moment. You know, you, you could just as easily have just missed that window because it's so short uh, to have the right thought and the right sound and something that really snaps. 
But Umbop hit at just the right time. The Spice Girls had set the stage, and Hanson seized the moment. Umbop was released to radio in April, and by Memorial Day, it was the number one song in the country. But even before we achieved that chart feat, we could feel an intensity building. To celebrate the release of Hanson's album, radio station Z100 decided to hold an event at the record store in the Paramus Park Mall in New Jersey. Taylor Hanson recalls the scene. You could feel there's, there's an energy in the air as we pulled up to the mall, and there was not a parking space in that mall left open. And all of us sort of had this almost eerie, sort of like a T-Rex, you know, you could have, it couldn't have been Jurassic Park where the T-Rex like suddenly walks in. It was like, there's a spooky reality to something that's going on here. Nobody can quite put their finger on. And you make jokes like, oh, who's got a sale on at Macy's? You know, this is, must be something happening. What was happening was that Hanson were about to explode into instant stardom. Well, the song had made its appearance and it had resonated enough that that mall was packed from wall to wall with what they estimated was maybe close to 8,000 people or something, something mind-boggling. Um, walking into that acoustic performance, it felt like we had just fast-forwarded into a, a movie that we had hoped to be in, you know? We'd been cast in the film of, uh, of a record that suddenly worked. And quite frankly, I, I held my breath after we finished that and walked in, got into the car, and thought, I want to do anything I can to keep this feeling, to be able to do what I'm doing right now, because it feels so amazing to stand in a room singing a song that you wrote in your garage that means something to you and have people feeling that and singing it back to you. It's a powerful, powerful thing and probably one of the most addictive drugs you can find, uh, which is that connection that music you know, creates. It's, it's, that night changed everything. Tom Pullman from Z100 also remembers Paramus Park Mall as a watershed event. I was at the station at the time, but I got a call from our head of promotions saying, you're not going to believe this, but this place is insane right now. The place is mobbed, and uh, there's just this incredible reaction. Again, it was one, another one of those moments where, my God, there's something else happening in music right now. That something happened with the pendulum swing. I don't know if it's because everybody was burnt out on alternative music at the time, and you just needed something different, but... You know, that was another one of those moments. Again, like sitting under the, the seats at Jingle Ball and feeling uh, the place rocking. From inside the mall, I called Danny Goldberg, who was back at the Mercury offices, but he couldn't really hear me through all the screaming. I remember he said to me, kind of incredulously, what's that, their fans? Remember, this was completely unexpected. I shouted, yes! He later told me he'd never heard that high-pitched screaming sound before, even though he'd worked with some of the biggest acts in rock music. Yeah, because it's young girls, right? It's a pop, it's the younger female audience. No, Zeppelin didn't get that sound, nor did Nirvana. The Beatles did. And so does every generation, you know, in, you know that's, that's that sound. Yeah, it's true. That was uh, the first time I, I had one of those, yeah. But the Paramus Park Mall event also carried with it an air of danger as the Hanson brothers will certainly never forget. We're about to go out and do a, um, a performance which was on a stage that was a, a foot riser, not set up for some mega concert, but we had to get, I think, about 30 feet from the, from the door behind, kind of the backstage of the mall to this little spot. And it was 
as if we were going to battle just to get to that stage. Um, because there was there were thousands of bodies just pressed up against each other. So once we finished the three songs, which went by in a flash, um, we were done. We didn't have anything else to do. We didn't have, any, we didn't have a concert ready to share. So um, moving from that stage back 30 feet again to get back to the door, um, halfway through it, the entire, uh, this little, you know, invisible uh, line that was, you know, um, a velvet rope, I think, and a stanchion fell and... Zach went right down to the floor. And, um, you know, that moment, you have this kind of, uh, what did I sign up for? You know, is this, this isn't music. This is, <laughs> what's happening right now? But yeah, we pulled through and his, um, he will forever, have, you know, layers of agoraphobia in his <laughs> back of his mind based on that experience here almost 20, you know, 20 plus years later. The situation was saved when a hulking Mercury Records promo man named Dave Bruchard lifted Zach Hansen up over his head and carried him out of the mall to safety. But he really was on the verge of being crushed by the crowd. Now, word of that event spread across the music industry instantly. Karen Glauber remembers hearing about it in Los Angeles, but says she wasn't surprised. Girls like cute boys. There's always been forever. It's teen pop is important. Whose photo do you want to have on your wall? Well, whose picture? It's always going to be, whether it was David Cassidy or Michael Jackson when you're growing up, or I had Neil Diamond. I was a little weird. Neil Diamond's picture was on my, on my wall from hot August night when I was a child. But there's, as long as there are girls and hormones, there's going to be an affection for boys that make music. And especially if they're marketed and packaged together, Girls are always going to go crazy for them. And whether and then when they prove their musical chops, when they evolve, when they grow up, when their voices change, whatever happens, then if they actually have the talent, they're going to sustain a great career. The screaming, hysterical girls continued to follow Hanson everywhere they went, as Conan Bryan discussed with the band when they appeared on its TV show. Uh, big group when I was coming along was The Who. They had the world record for loudness of screaming girls at a concert, which was 126 decibels. You guys broke that record, right? With 140. Something like that, yeah. I don't, I don't know the exact statistics. All I know is this is really loud. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, as the pop revolution swept America, the Backstreet Boys and their manager, Johnny Wright, watched from Germany, where they'd been steadily developing their career since their failure to break America in 1995. As Johnny Wright recalled, We used to call America no fan land because nobody knew who the band was. And I will tell you this, is that when we were there and, and we heard the Spice Girls come in and then when we heard Umbach play on the radio in the United States, that's when we said, hmm, guys, it's time to go home. On the next episode of Speed of Sound, the Spice Girls implode, Hanson demures, while the Backstreet Boys find superstardom, followed by another boy band and America's Sweetheart. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. 
Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. I'm Steve Greenberg. Until next time, keep listening for music that moves you. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 